As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. As always, as always, super excited to be, to have this episode today. I am joined by Zifang, and today we will be talking about the one and only Claudia Jones. And why I think it's important, in my kind of own reading of post-colonial revolutionary figures, there's a few things that mark them out, particularly their internationalism being one, the kind of association with Marxist takes or Marxist analysis being another. So we're going to focus on one figure in the hope that we unpack, we learn about her. And I think it's very important that, you know, we do speak about women, particularly black women, right? black women radicals. So thank you. Welcome, Zifang. And thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. So before we even talk about Claudia Jones, I have to ask you, where do you come in contact with her and why does she, why is she an inspiration for you? Right. So I actually came to know the work of Claudia Jones via Professor Carboys Davis, who uh, mm-hmm. is the author of this important book, Left of Karl Marx, which I recommend everyone read. So that's really the book about Claudia Jones. So I was a student in China when Professor Boyce Davis came to my university as a visiting professor. So we talked and she encouraged me to do research on Claudia Jones in China. And that was really the kind of starting point of my research journey. And as I learned more about the work of Claudia Jones, I became more and more interested in you know, her activism, her ideas, her life. And she really has been an important inspiring figure for me ever since I started doing research on her. So what was it exactly that, that really, really inspired you? Well, her persistence, her tenacity, really. Like, you know, we all know that she was persecuted because of her political ideas, and but she persisted in her activism, right? So I like that kind of persistence in, you know, continuing to struggle for dignity and liberation. And I also like how she was able to refashion herself, right? So when, as we know, so she started in, so she started her political career really in the United States, but then she went to the, the UK where she refashioned herself, where she connected with the burgeoning Black community in London. And I really like how she was able to connect herself with, you know, different communities and try to be kind of apprised of global events and then try to always understand what was going on and then try to reinvent her ideas. So I like that. Yeah, awesome. I mean, she remains an inspiration for so many of us. So, okay, so if we're going to give an intro, and I know, again, this is probably impossible and probably maybe not even the best respectful way to kind of summarize somebody as great as Claudia Jones. But if I was to ask you to give me like a summary of who she was, her life, what she did, her motivations, and all of the above, how would you respond? 
sure. This is definitely a daunting task, but I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll try to be as comprehensive as possible. So I would still recommend everyone read A Left Called Marx. And then there is another book, which is a collection of the writings by Claudia Jones entitled Claudia Jones Beyond Containment, right? Mm -hmm. So in this book, there is a short essay by Claudia Jones entitled Autobiographical History. So basically just to use that to kind of talk about her life, right? Mm -hmm. So she migrated to the U.S. from Port of Spain, Trinidad, where she was born at the age of eight. She grew up in a working class family, experienced racism, class oppression, and anti-immigrant hostility early in life. She became a Communist Party member because she was impressed with the, the Communist Party's advocacy efforts on behalf of the Scottsboro Boys. So she was very active in the Young Communist League and uh, several Black left organizations, including the National Negro Congress. She was mm -hmm. also elected into the National Committee of the CPUSA. She worked in movements for women's liberation, peace, racial justice. She was a member of the Black Left Feminist Organization, Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which, according to historian Aaron McDuffie, paid special attention to the intersectional, systemic nature of Black women's oppression and understood mm -hmm. their struggle for dignity and freedom in global terms. Right, But still, as we know, Claudia Jones really became a leader of the Communist Party USA during the uh, intense kind of McCarthy anti-communist repression era. So she was arrested first in 1948 under the 1980 Immigration Act, and the FBI began to try to build a case to get her deported. Right, So she was uh, arrested again with uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn under the Smith Act, and she was rearrested in 1951 under the McCarran-Water Act, which made legal the deportation of quote-unquote dangerous, disloyal, and subversive non-U.S. citizens and the seizure of U.S. citizens' passports, right? So she was persecuted, arrested, right? And, and as we know, she imprisoned for over nine months in 1955, then she was deported. So according to uh, Carboys Davis, deportation might not be the best word to describe her, you know, journey or her kind of new political life in London. So we actually prefer to use the word exile, right? So mm. because the kind of uh, the use of the word deportation kind of uh, deprives Claudia Jones of her own subjectivity, right? So she mm -hmm. was able to refashion herself when she got to London. So when she was in London, she founded the West Indian Gazette, which was later renamed West Indian Gazette and Afro-Asian Caribbean News. And the renaming was done to reflect more accurately the political positions and intended readers, right? To really mm -hmm. to kind of use that as a kind of a platform to share ideas with other uh, burgeoning Black communities in London. And still, she persisted in her activism on behalf of movements for racial justice, even when she was in London, right? So she was able to connect kind of decolonization movements in Africa, in uh, Asia, in Latin America, to you know, still the racial activism in the United States. And she was also able to connect to the kind of global kind of anti-nuclear movement 
to decolonization. And it was when she was actually based in London, she made connections with activists in China. And in 1964, she visited uh, Japan and China. And so she came back in late 1964 to London, and she wanted to write more about her experiences in China, but she died on Christmas Day in 1964. So yeah, it was said that we didn't get to really know more about her experience in China, but um, still she did left important documents, uh, writings for us to uh, explore her ideas, to understand the kind of larger historical period in which she operated. It's quite interesting you speaking about her not being able to document her life in her, her experience in China, but the fact that she went there, we find that all too often a lot of our, you know, a lot of our revolutionary kind of forefathers have that kind of trajectory, isn't it? There is that connection with internationalism, particularly with China at that time. So we have, you know, Du Bois and Shirley Graham and many other revolutionary figures who who end up in China or visiting China. Do you want to speak about that link briefly, if possible, maybe about that link between like black radicalism and its connection to, you know, the, what was the ongoings in China in that time, particularly when I'm thinking of the Black Panthers, isn't it? Black Panthers, how they were so inspired by, you know, by Maoism. And, and we find that throughout, there is that kind of connection between the kind of revolutionary theories and practices of what's taking place in China and also with black activism in the US. So what is that link? And do you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So... The Chinese Revolution and later the construction of the socialism in China have were definitely uh, important inspirations for radicals all over the world. Right, the four black radicals in America and in other parts of the world, they were inspired by first of all the fact that you know it was a successful anti-colonial and anti-imperialist revolution. Right, mm. and then it was also a successful victorious revolution down by people of color, right? So so that was, of course, very inspirational. But also the success of the Chinese Revolution was also an example of a kind of uh, localization of Marxism, right? So according to this kind of a traditional kind of Marx kind of ideology, right? So there was a kind of, uh, I guess, like there was a kind of process of Kind of different stages, right? So for a for the establishment of a socialist society, the society needs to go through, you know, like a feudal society, a capitalist society. And when this capitalist society reaches a, a very kind of a advanced stage, it can become a socialist society. But for China, right? So for a for a country that was basically agricultural, that was poor, mm-hmm. to become a socialist society, that really showed to many radicals that they didn't have to wait for the kind of material conditions quote, 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 okay. to really to 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 be ripe really for a kind of revolution similar to the Chinese revolution to happen. So that was really inspiring as well. And also at the same time, the Chinese government was also very supportive of global revolutions. And Chairman Mao was interested in kind of not really exploiting Chinese revolution, but in supporting like like in particular anti-colonial struggles, but also mm-hmm. subscribe to this idea of proletarian internationalism. And mm-hmm. as China remained so committed to supporting global 
revolution movements until at least the end of the radical period of the Cultural Revolution. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I think many of times people are unaware of the involvement that, let's say, Chairman Mao and and um, China at the time had with supporting struggles around the world, and particularly the link between China at the time and black radicals and how many, I mean, I mean, I think, I believe it's Du Bois that spends his 90th birthday in, as a guest of the state in China. And we have, and I think Shirley Graham, his wife actually dies in China. So I think, you know, these things really, we, when we speak about international struggle, I think these, I mean, we can almost trace that back to the Bandung conference, isn't it? There is that kind of link taking place between, you know, moving away from trying to form solely alliances or of or kind of the strict definitions of the proletariat being in the West, but actually, no, there is a global global proletariat in the darker nations. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. When, a lot of the time when people bring up Claudia Jones, I hear them speak about she brought an aspect of like what it means to be a woman or, or an aspect of black feminism to Marxist analysis. Is there something you can speak to on that? Oh, yes, absolutely. So... Still, from the book by Carpoise Davis, right? We know Claudia mm-hmm. Jones was a communist uh, of Marxist-Leninist orientation, right? And mm-hmm. according to Angela Davis, so she was a dedicated communist who believed that socialism held the only promise of liberation for black women, for black mm-hmm. people as a whole, and indeed for the multiracial working class, right? To understand Claudia Jones's position, what was called the woman question, we had to first of all understand that she was a communist, right? So Jones, really, so Jones's many analysis drew from Leninist positions, women, but it was her infusion of Black women's concerns into Marxist Leninism that put her, to use the words of Carol Boyce Davis, left of Karl Marx, right? So she was, uh, mm. according to Carol Boyce Davis, more radical than Karl Marx, because she was able to talk about the specific questions, the specific problems facing Black working class women, right? Mm -hmm. So Claudia Jones developed this idea, which is the super-exploitation, or what we might call triple oppression of Black women, right? So Mm -hmm. according to her, so this is a quote from one of her essays, so Negro women as workers, as Negroes, as women are the most oppressed stratum of the whole population. Right? So from this sentence, we can see that Claudia Jones was able to, to really talk about Black women's different kind of, kind of different systems oppression that were suppressing Black women, right? But still, she was able to also discern Black women's militancy, right? And their central role mm-hmm. in movements for Black women's and working class liberation. So in many essays, she talked about the importance of Black women's economic independence. So she called for inclusion of Black women into production. Right? And she also called yeah. for Black women's leadership, right? Because she was a leader in the Communist Party, right? And she wanted more Black women to assume leadership roles in revolution movements as well, right? And still... We should not forget that for Claudia Jones, the liberation of Black women should always be linked to a variety of movements, right? So Claudia Jones's politics identified capitalism, racism, sexism, and class oppression as interlocking systems oppression. And she placed the poor and the working class Black women in the vanguard of Black women's working class liberation, right? So that is I would say like a short sentence to describe her politics. 
Wow, thank you so much for that. I mean, there's so much to to unpack there, unpack there. So, I mean, if you just want to take it back a little bit, I mean, you so succinctly in the in the beginning of this episode spoke about how she developed her orientation because she was impressed by the the kind of advocacy of the communism or the communist party in the states. What I would just say then, if you could speak maybe a bit to more, is there specific? I know you mentioned the Scarborough case. So anything specific or any things, any more things that kind of shaped her orientation and shaped her life going into activism? Oh yes, definitely. So Claudia Jones, as we know, she was impressed by the Communist Party's efforts on behalf of the Scarborough boys, right? Which yeah. was a, I guess, internationally known case, actually. And at the, that same time, the Communist Party USA and NRACP were competing to represent the Scottsboro boys, right? And the Communist Party got the upper hand, and Claudia Jones was very impressed with that. But also, she really kind of joined the, not really the Communist Party, but the kind of communist culture when she was very young, Right, so she was a member of the Young Communist League, and she also really started working as a journalist or editor. Right, so at the beginning of her political career, she uh, was able to kind of conduct her political activism through journalism. Wow! Right, so that was actually, I guess, how she was able to become a, you know, a a publisher. Of one of Britain's first major black news- newspaper, right? So, so, the, so the the beginning of that definitely could be traced to her early years in the United States, right? But also, as we know, so she was from the Caribbean, right? Mm-hmm. And there, when she got to the Caribbean, there had already been a tradition of Caribbean activism, right? So, so, and we know many important uh, Caribbean intellectuals who called Harlem home, right? And Claudia Jones was definitely immersed in that radical tradition. And I think we have to understand that as well. But also, you know, for Claudia Jones, her particular separatist position in the U.S., right, as not only as a Black woman, but also as a Black woman from the Caribbean, right, she was um, never really naturalized as an American. That's why she was able to understand this kind of anti-immigrant sentiment in the U.S., right? Also because as someone from a former British colony, she was also able to understand colonialism and imperialism, right? So I would say all these things definitely informed her political ideas, right? And then she relocated to London, and when she got to London, she was really able to be in closer touch with you know people from the Caribbean and from Africa, right? So she was able to really uh, gain a kind of more intimate knowledge about British colonialism and imperialism, right? So and all of these things really shaped her politics. And still, this also is to show that she kind of kept kind of uh, sharpening her political analysis, kept developing new ideas, really based on or as a response to different different political moments as well but also just she just kept really learning and developing her ideas thank you for that i'm aware of when she was in the uk i think she was quite instrumental in the establishing of what is known as notting hill carnival right uh, yes. in the uk today what would you say about or what is there known or documented about her time spent mm-hmm. as an activist in the uk what what did that look like what did she get up to Right. So when she was in the UK, so when when she first got to the UK, right, she suspected that, you know, so she was allowed, I mean, she, 
So, you know, like during the time of her deportation, so there was one, I guess, theory that she could be de- deported back to Trinidad. But she suspected that, you know, the reason why she was allowed in England rather than Trinidad was that British officials did not want her to, uh, you know, send a radical agitator to a colony where locals were organizing, right? So they, so, so the reason why she was, uh, according to her, was allowed in the UK was because the British officials could really keep an eye on her, right? Mm-hmm. So still in the UK, she was really aware of, you know, the, the kind of similar surveillance of radical activities in Britain as well. And then when she was in the UK, according to Carol Davis, Claudia Jones's political activism indicated a reorientation away from a Soviet Communist Party line, which was actually the line of the Communist Party USA toward mm-hmm. a pan-African and the third world emancipatory design. Right. So when she first got to London, she tried to connect with the, the British Communist Party, but the British Communist Party members weren't very interested in addressing questions about colonialism. So Claudia Jones decided to kind of stay away from the Communist Party circles in the UK and to be more responsive to the communities around her, right? That's why she founded this newspaper and the carnival, right? So, Mm -hmm. and still, because of that kind of third world orientation that happened when she was in the UK, she was able to be in closer touch you know, the larger third world, right? So China yes. in particular, right? And and also Japan, Africa. So if you read her newspaper, which I think is available at the uh, Lambeth Archive in South London, you'll be able to see that. So this newspaper reflected her like concern about the larger kind of decolonizing world, right? And it's, it's not just about a, a, like kind of local events, but it was really a newspaper that reflected her global and local concerns. And then Claudia Jones was really an inspiration to many activists who came after her, right? So for example, one, I would say like one interesting example could be seen in Stephen McQueen's new, I guess, anthology of films, I would say. So I think in the last one, it's called Education. So it's uh, it's about, so I think like toward the end of that, film, you get to see a kind of Sunday school run by a Black woman. And so this Black woman actually teaches younger people about Claudia Jones, right? So Claudia Jones definitely was, I guess, has been relatively more known to people in the UK because she spent her last years there. And many of her colleagues continued to, you know, be part of the different uh, movements and they were able to continue her her, her la- legacy, right? Yes. But still, she was relatively, she's still relatively less known in the U.S. because of uh, the intense McCarthyism, and also because she was deported, right? So that deportation did not just uh, mean kind of re- like deporting her from the U- from the U.S. Also, that means a kind of uh, disappearing of her from, you know, the larger academic and political discourses in the U.S. as well. Wow. Um, I hold that for. I want to unpack that. When we speak about her colleagues or people who came after her, do you have access to what they said about her, kind of her detailing her kind of final trajectory? I know you've mentioned she kind of moved towards more pan-African stances. Do we have anything about this? Did she visit Africa? No, she she was not, but she was in touch with the many African activists. And from her newspaper, 
you can know that she was interested in you know the Congo crisis and okay. you know the the kind of anti-colonial struggles in uh, southern Africa. Yeah, but she was. I mean, when she was in London, she was able to kind of connect with the African activists and intellectuals, but she never went to Africa herself. Okay, thank you for that. And kind of shifting gears a little bit, I always use my opportunity whenever I get to speak to brilliant people like yourself. I just kind of <laughs> do my best to kind of take as much in as possible for our listeners. In the, when we say we, we hear it a lot, McCarthyism. What is it? Right. So McCarthyism, right? So McCarthyism definitely is uh, named after the senator McCarthy who proposed. Uh, so I'm not a scholar of McCarthyism. So this is, this is going to be a very basic no, uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> introduction to uh, McCarthyism, right? So McCarthyism, I guess, means this kind of whole set of, I guess, systems and campaigns against communists or alleged communists, actually, or fellow travelers in the U.S. government and other institutions, right? So the the person, the McCarthy, his name was Joseph McCarthy. So people say, you know, kind of official definition, according to official definition, McCarthyism ended in the mid-1950s, right? But still, according to another scholar, she's Bernard study, there has been what she calls kind of McCarthyist structure feeling, right? So McCarthyism officially ended, but this whole anti-communist, you know, apparatus system and sentiment still exists, right? So, and Claudia Jones, her kind of communist ideas really were hidden for so long because of her agitation for socialism, right? Because of her agitation for working class uh, liberation, right? But still, we have to also understand that, you know, for someone like Claudia Jones, McCarthyism combined with the, you know, this kind of long-standing anti-black racism, right, and uh, sexism. Mm-hmm. So, so these are the forces that really silenced her. But still, you know, even to study people like Claudia Jones and her mm-hmm. colleagues, we still have to confront this kind of even this kind of intellectual McCarthyism. Right, so we have to, you know, be bold enough and to to talk about, you know, how academia has always been, kind of silencing, creating barriers to access to those radical ideas, right, and and how you know McCarthyism and anti-blackism have always been intertwined with each other, right? So you know, like for I guess I guess in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, right, you don't have to be a communist to be called a communist, right? So whoever yeah. agitated for... I mean, we're called... seeing that today, isn't it? We're seeing yeah, that yeah. in 2021. <laughs> right? It's, a, it's, a, it's it's interesting because, yeah, so this whole idea of red baiting, right? So... Yes. So which, which still exists today, right? So people call, like, I mean, the US, whatever relatively progressive program as communist, Right. Exactly. So, you you want free healthcare, you're all of a sudden you're considered right. to be a communist. <laughs> yeah, I mean like Barack Obama was called a communist, right? And exactly. that's just a uh, very bizarre. So it's but still this like red baiting has or or this kind of labeling as a communist has been a political tool really to stoke fears among, you know, I guess the masses who have been conditioned to this kind of anti-communist sentiment, right? So if you want to be naturalized as a U.S. citizen, you have to say that you have never been a member of a communist party, 
Right. So yes, I noticed that. I saw that. Right. So yes, I would say yes. Yeah, so this McCarthyist uh, mentality still exists, right? And now I would say it manifests uh, clearly in you know the kind of persecution of radical intellectuals in academia. Wow. And does that persecution of radical intellectuals still take place? Right. Yes. Definitely. I mean, in particular, with regard to you know. I would say, like, in a different sense, right? But still, yeah. a lot of, uh, I mean, quite a few activists, activist scholars who got persecuted because of their stance on Palestine, right? Yes. And I would say many of those who were persecuted also because they had a kind of left understanding or left response to Palestine. And I would say that is still a kind of form of McCarthyism, but not definitely the same as the kind of McCarthyism that existed in the 1950s. Thank you so much, Zifang. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Thank everyone, you. for listening. I hope we had a very brief introduction in which you learned something about the amazing Claudia Jones, and I hope that this has inspired you to learn more. This is The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please, as usual, like, comment, subscribe, and until next time, take care.